It's philosophy talk. If celebrities didn't want people pawing through their garbage and saying they're gay, they shouldn't have tried to express themselves creatively. Quince human creativity. I'm a dead firecracker, I ain't got any fuse, I ain't got no inspiration since I lost my muse. I'm a table with two legs, I'm a spider with five. I'm going down slow, muse, when will you arrive? Oh, muse, where are you? Where does human creativity come from? From our neural hardwiring? From our genetic programming? Can creativity be mechanized, routinized, and programmed? What are the limits on human creativity? He drank and I smoke stuff. He drank and I smoke stuff. He drank and I smoke stuff. I don't know what to do. The mystery of human creativity. Coming up on Philosophy Talk after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Our topic today, the science of human creativity. Science of creativity, Ken? What what does that even mean? I mean, creativity works in mysterious ways. If you could mechanize it, routinize it through science, eh, it wouldn't be creativity anymore. Oh, John, you're such a mystery monger. Look, creativity is a human capacity. It resides in a human brain. If the human brain can be understood scientifically, which it can, then creativity can be understood scientifically. Ken, you're thinking about creativity in much too reductionistic terms. Well, John, what do you ever do you mean by that fancy word of yours? Well, you're thinking about creativity as a single biological capacity or psychological process. You locate it in the brain and you you study it with some experiments or maybe even look at it through a microscope, but that can't be right. Let, let me push you into this insight by, by making you first define creativity. Well, Creativity is the capacity to produce new ideas. Any new ideas? Well, no, no, not just any ideas. Ideas that are surprising or unexpected, that enable you to do new things or to see the world in novel and fruitful ways, or maybe even to think thoughts that you couldn't think before. Creativity is the mind's capacity to fashion new mental tools for itself, sort of sort of ex nihilo, you know, to create something out of nothing. Aha! Now you sound like the mystery monger, but l- let's look at some of the words you use. Surprising, novel, fruitful... Something's not surprising, novel, and fruitful because of what goes on in a single human brain. There is the eye of the beholder uh, and not just the brain of the creator that, that, that has to be taken into account. It's just not the sort of thing that can be localized and studied scientifically. I, 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 I kind of see what you're saying, but, but I'm not sure I catch your full drift. You seem to be suggesting that because creativity has, let's admit it, a subjective or maybe even evaluative component to it, that there can't be a science of it? Is that what you're suggesting? I, I'm saying that an idea is creative. Creative isn't just up to the kind of what brain processes that produce it. It's a distributed phenomena throughout society. It's cultural. It's subjective. It's not just biological and psychological. Well, maybe there. Are, I'm going to grant you there aren't any completely objective standards of creativity, but I don't think that it follows from that that creativity is purely subjective, and I don't think it follows from that that it's not scientific. I mean, look, first, don't confuse finding something creative with liking or approving of it. I recognize, for example, that... Lots of uh, avant-garde music is highly creative, but frankly, most of it leaves me really cold. Well, let me try to explain it once more. 
Creativity is a multifaceted thing. Your own definition shows that. Sometimes it involves brand new ways of thinking or seeing. Sometimes it involves reconfiguring or transforming old patterns. Sometimes it involves recombining what you have already have, but in quite different ways. So the capacity for creativity isn't some single thing that could somehow be located at a particular place in the brain or, or be reduced to some simple psychological processes. It just doesn't work that way. Well, John, you, th you make it sound like it's all so mysterious. And I, and I grant you it's complex. But despite its complexity, I still think that there's a lot that science, especially cognitive science, and even computer science can tell us about human creativity. Cognitive scientists have, in fact, made huge strides in understanding the mental architecture, the stuff in our brain that underlies our complex capacity for creativity. And computer scientists, believe it or not, have managed to program computers to do highly creative things, like produce works of art or music, for example. Well, I have a creative way out of our impasse, Ken. Let's talk to one of the world's leading computer and more particularly cognitive scientist, Margaret Bowden. She's going to join us in just a little bit. And, of course, we'd like your creative input on our subject as well. The number to call is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Julie Napolin, takes us to an engineering lab to get a close look at mechanical creativity on a grand scale. She files this report. At UC Berkeley Etchenberry Hall, mechanical engineers are grinding parts for robotics. Around the corner, a group of programmers are developing algorithms for computer-assisted surgery. This is not the kind of place you'd expect to find an artist. Between being an artist and, and an engineer, yes, it's, um, there's some uh, conflict there. It's um, two worlds. Ken Goldberg is director of the Berkeley Center for New Media and Digital Art. Several years ago, Goldberg wanted to see if he could combine his background in computer programming with his love of the arts. Artists have always looked at a variety of different sources and tools and things that they can work with to make art. And I think that because we're so surrounded nowadays by uh, technologies, that it makes sense to think about how those technologies can, can express things that we couldn't express with other forms. In 1999, he teamed up with the Berkeley Seismology Lab and a musical composer. Together, they translated small, unfelt changes in the Earth's movement into sounds. When there's an earthquake somewhere else in the world, the sonic effect of that gets transmitted through the Earth's surface, and it will continue to ring for months afterward. So there's all this, this essentially resonance that's always going on in the Earth. The human ear cannot hear the music of the Earth because the sound is too low a frequency. Goldberg and his team decided to create a series of pre-recorded natural sounds that could be triggered by these small movements of the Earth. And you can think of those as the players in an orchestra. And then the Earth was a conductor. So the Earth was triggering all these other sounds. After producing a live sound installation, Goldberg wanted to memorialize the 1906 earthquake in a performance. In 2006, at the very moment of the 100th anniversary of the quake, data from the Hayward fault line was fed into an opera house. They called the piece Memento Mori. As a computer triggered musical sounds that corresponded with the internal movements of the earth, a dancer from the San Francisco Ballet took the stage and improvised. 
she did not know what the sound was going to be when she got out onto the when she stepped onto the stage, and then she danced to it for for eight minutes. There's a sense of collaboration because she had to be the one to get to get out there in front of three thousand people, and 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 then really translate this physically with her body, um, this signal, the sound, and respond to it. David Bates is professor of rhetoric and a member of the Berkeley Center for New Media. This piece really demonstrates how humans and machines could both be understood as, as complex entities that, that perform in response to their environments. He says this musical and movement collaboration puts pressure on older models of creativity. The traditional ideas would be one that, that stresses the, the individualistic nature of creation, and that would include theories of genius, but also um, a more common sense idea that when you're being creative, you're doing something that's, that's unique. I think this would really challenge that notion because it, it, it underscores just how in, inevitably cooperative any act of creation is. Who is the artist? And should the earth get a credit? That's a very good question. In fact, you could redefine creativity as simply um, a complex response to the environment. One of the things that strikes me is that it forces us to confront our own environments and to in some ways see ourselves in that, in that place, the place where we're constantly improvising and responding and working with machines and forcing us to think carefully about our position in these technological worlds. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Julie Napolin. I'm John Perry, and with me is Ken Taylor. And our guest today is Margaret Bowden. She's Research Professor of Cognitive Science at the University of Sussex. She's author of many things, including The Creative Mind and, most recently, Mind as Machine, A History of Cognitive Science. Margaret, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you. Hello, John or Ken, whichever it is I'm talking to. Uh, that oh, was Ken. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was Ken. This is John. So, so Margaret, <laughs> m- most people tend to, be, uh, t- tend to think creativity is kind of intrinsically mysterious. I mean, if it wasn't, it wouldn't be creativity, right? But right. you're a scientist, so you're in the business of trying to solve mysteries. What, what made you think that cognitive and computer sciences might unravel the mystery of creativity? Well, because it's just one aspect, a fascinating and basically very mysterious aspect of the human mind, uh, which has always, uh, even when I was at high school, absolutely fascinated me. And one in particular, I was interested in how you could have uh, things like purpose and freedom and so forth in a basically material universe. And it seemed to me, when I went to university and I found out about artificial intelligence, AI for short, it seemed to me that that was the way of thinking about these things. And the obvious challenge, the greatest challenge of all, well, perhaps the greatest challenge is consciousness. But after consciousness, the greatest challenge of all was creativity, because if AI uh, couldn't model creativity, couldn't help us to understand that, then you couldn't say, really, that it was hugely useful for understanding the human mind and the mind-body problem in general. Okay, so now Ken and I in the intro kind of uh, uh, played around with a definition of creativity, but why don't you give us your more professional and and, uh, academically motivated conception of creativity? Well, it's not so different. In fact, it's very similar. I also would define creativity as the capacity to come up with ideas that are new and surprising and valuable. But what I would say is that new has 
Two senses here. Surprising has three, and valuable has perhaps an infinite number. Well, but you're not going to articulate yeah. all of yeah. those. No, no, no. <laughs> don't, don't try no, to go the through the is, No, 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 no. But the point is this was coming up, you know, in, in your discussion, because you were talking about different ways in which an idea can be valued. Uh, and as you said, it's maybe valued by one social group and not by another, and by one culture and not by another. Um, we, know, we look for different sorts of things in creative science, in creative art, in making jokes, in doing political cartoons uh, for ma- newspapers. Ma- maybe a couple of your favorite examples will help us. Well, one nice example, I think, is um, just think, political cartoon in your daily newspaper. Mm. Uh, to understand that, and also to draw it in the first place, um, you have to, on the one hand, have a lot of world knowledge about politics and what just happened last week, you know, and you have to combine those things probably in new ways. Otherwise, it's not new and surprising, and it's not regarded as a, a really good political cartoon. So that's an example so of what, what I would call combinational creativity. I wonder, Margaret, when we use the term creative, though, I mean, you're a scientist and you want this scien- this this scientifically studyable thing, but there's also this, a kind of honorific use of creative. I mean, I, I say that was a highly creative idea. In some ways, I'm approving it, but some new ideas... You know, I don't approve of. I think they're astoundingly evil, devious ideas, right? They may be in some sense ingenious, but, you know, like Hitler's uh, final solution. That's an ingenious idea, I guess, but I wouldn't call it creative, right? I mean, so how do we distinguish, I mean, how do we pick out from the new those which we want to call creative? Or is that just a subjective cultural well, it's a cult. Yes, it's a cultural. It's a cultural thing, and uh, the the example of Hitler is a very good one because yes, he was ingenious in many ways, and obviously, in some sense, a political genius, um, making people do what he wanted to do, persuading them to do what he wanted to do. Yet, what he wanted to do was ghastly. So yes, this this word valuable here is very very tricky, and when I say that there can be a science of creativity, what I mean is there can be a science that helps us to understand how. Creativity Creative ideas happen. Helps us to understand they don't come out of nothing, like you know somebody, something that you were talking about. But of course, because the notion of value isn't something that science can deal with, even if there's only one value involved, just isn't a matter for science. Uh, I don't think that there can be a science of creativity in the full sense. Well, that's an interesting thought. I mean, that that provokes a lot of things I I want to talk to you about. But uh, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're discussing creativity with one of the world's leading cognitive scientists, Margaret Bowden, author of The Creative Mind. We've been trying to get a handle on just what creativity is, looking at a couple of examples in our next segment. We're going to explore the different forms of creativity and talk about whether there could be a science of it. How do you define creativity? Do you think it can be routinized, programmed, mechanized? Or must it forever remain a mystery? Call us at 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. The many forms of creativity, plus your creative calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. This is Philosophy Talk. We're exploring the science of human creativity. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Do you think creativity is destined to remain a mystery? Or can science reveal the true nature of human creativity? 
if creativity is programmed into computers, say, is it still creativity? And what about your own creativity? Have you ever had amazing bouts of creativity or been in a creative slump? Call in and tell us your favorite examples of creativity. What are the best ideas, the most creative ideas, the most creative movies of the last year? How about in your own life? You ever had just an idea that came out of nowhere and changed everything? Tell us about it. The toll-free number is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Our guest is Margaret Bowden from the University of Sussex. Uh, Margaret, look, computers are programmed to run algorithms, mechanical step-by-step processes that require no insight to execute and are guaranteed to produce a result. That's what computers do. Creativity, on the other hand, seems at least intuitively, it seems to be the very opposite of an algorithm. So tell me, how could a computer possibly be programmed to be creative? Well, that doesn't even make sense, does it? Well, uh, it can certainly be programmed to produce results which if a human being had produced them, we would accept as creative. And that's a factual claim, not a philosophical one. Mm -hmm. It's a factual claim, and it's already been shown to be true. I mean, for example, um, we talked about, and people very often talk about, coming up with new combinations of familiar ideas, and that's one sort of creativity. Now, you might say, well, obviously a computer could do that, but that would be too quick, actually, because although a computer can certainly make, come up with new combinations till kingdom come, the problem here is making them valuable. The problem here is giving it the knowledge and the um, rules of selection, if you like, to enable it to see which new combinations are worthy of interest and which aren't. Well, uh, look, I, but let's just say there's two sides of this. There's the generation problem, generate mm. the new ideas, yes. and then there's the select out from among the ideas generated the valuable ones or something like that. Yes. And here's a thought, a Mysterian thought, I grant, but I want you to tell me what, why there's Mysterian thought. Somehow what humans do in generating this is guided by intelligence, in intuition, a creative knack, genius, or something like that, right? It's not just some dumb mechanical process that spits them out in, in accordance with a, a, an algorithm. Well, we don't know what it is, and all those words that you use, the <laughs> intuition, for example, is the name of a question, not of an answer. The question is, the scientific question is, how does intuition work? When we talk about intuition, what we, just, what we mean is we manage to do something, but we don't know how we do it. Right. So the question is, well, how do we manage to do it? Right. I, 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 I take that. I think that's a well taken point. I think that's a well taken point. But the question, as stated, seems to make it very far from an algorithm, a dumb step by step mechanical procedure. Right. I mean, you, you, but, but, but Ken, think about think about uh, uh, somebody gives you a puzzle or something and you, and you just uh, Try trial and error. You see if this puzzle fits this way or that way or this way or that way. Well, you might come up with a very creative solution that way. Uh, but uh, but the process is basically made up of simple, dumb efforts to fit it in this way or that way. Yeah, uh, and, and, and also, I mean, take a different sort of creativity, uh, which is really exploring a style. Somebody comes up with a style of thinking. It may be a style of painting like Impressionism, maybe a style of thinking about chemistry, like benzene chemistry, whatever it is. It's a way of thinking. And once you have learnt the rules of that style, you can then go on and explore it and come up with lots of new structures in that style. I mean, they, some of them may even be new to the whole of human history, and they're new to you anyway. Um, and you can, you know, try and see where the limits of that style are. Now, I would say that, you know, 
well over 90% of what professional artists and scientists do is actually exploratory creativity. It's not to be sneezed at. And that sort of thing uh, has been put into computer programs. There are a number of examples, very good examples, which come up with stuff which, as I say, if a human being had come up with, we would be have no problem calling it creative. I, I, I take your point. And actually, I mean, I've often thought of styles and genres in, in something like the way you're suggesting. I think of a, a genre as a, a possibility space. Absolutely. Right? There's a space yes. of possible compositions or whatever, right? And humans over historical time walk, take a walk through that space, right? Yes. Exploring the different possibilities. And Right, there might be some kind of dynamical principles that you could discover that determine the structure of those walks, and maybe you could put those in. Maybe you could put those in the machine, but that raises a fear that maybe the computers actually could could explore these possibility spaces more systematically, more fruitfully than we. Well, don't hold your breath. I mean, in the case of certain sorts of space, maybe, yes. In the case of anything to do with language, for example, um, forget it. I mean, human language and our understanding of human language, which, of course, is very close to our world knowledge anyway, uh, is hugely rich and hugely subtle. And I don't think that there's any possibility myself that there will ever be a, a, a computer program that would match our power, you know, in the general case of, for example, writing novels. They could Right, crummy ones, yes, but, but well, uh, not good ones. I, 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 you know, that, 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 you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're discussing creativity with Margaret Bowden, cognitive scientist and author of The Creative Mind. Uh, well, Margaret, I, I mean, I, I guess I probably agree with that, but but I think some subtasks, some linguistic subtasks, could could be t- take movie reviews. Mm. If I'm going to go to a movie, I, I check the reviews on Yahoo or someplace. Mm. And it seems like in that genre, there's about five different kinds of reviews and, and three <laughs> different kinds of criticisms and four different kinds of praise. And er- mm. that space will be completely occupied. So I think you could just have a have a computer just uh, generate all the different uh, rev- possible reviews of for the movie and uh, you'd have done just what the uh, human reviewers do. Of course, do. a space that can be occupied that's not very rich like that, we don't think of it as a space for great creativity. The, the spaces for great creativity are the ones whose boundaries seem boundless and that we're exploring them haltingly through 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 human cognition and well you know if if you if you're if you're trying to put together a a picture puzzle that's not very creative if you're trying to put together uh big things that might make a bridge that's that's more creative if you're trying to put together words uh or even complex theories that's that's really creative but maybe the basic process is the same Well, yes, and perhaps what's most creative of all is actually changing the style so that you can come up with fundamentally new sorts of idea, uh, you know, which literally couldn't have existed before. And I think those are the sorts of examples of creativity that people are most impressed by and that are most likely to get into the history books. Right, right, and maybe be the hardest nut for, a, say, a computer to crack. But you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking with Margaret Bowden about human creativity, the science of human creativity, and we'd love to have your input. 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. And Charles in Richmond's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Charles. Hi, great to hear a, a British person. I'm a big Waugh and Wodehouse fan, great creative <laughs> uh, writers. My question is, could a computer ever come up with the great, one of the great creative ideas of the 20th century, Einstein's, that energy and mass are simply two you know, forms of the same thing, in a sense? I mean, could a computer ever really come up with something like that? 
Well, I don't know. I don't understand enough about uh, Einstein's theories to to take that particular example. May I be very naughty and and change it, Charles, and tell you that you know, a, many years ago, computers came up with um, at least half a dozen of the very well known sort of named laws in physics, like you know, Charles's law and Black's law, Ohm's law, and so forth. And so you might say, and the people who did this did say, that they were modelling scientific discovery. The problem with that is that they, that not just that these weren't historically new laws, you know, physicists already knew about them, but that you might say the really creative act was to think about physics in terms of mathematics in the first place. I mean, why should you expect to find mathematical relationships out there when you look at the stars or when you drop things down inclined planes? And that idea, you know, was something which had already been taken by Galileo and the physicists after him, and that idea was provided for free, if you like, to these programs, and it was just assumed so, in other words, whatever, however you describe Einstein's idea, and as I say, I can't do that in sufficient detail to take it as a real example here, but if you can describe it in such a way that the questions that he asked uh, are sort of built in for the computer, then I don't see any difficulty in principle about the computer coming up with the answer. The question is, could you get a computer to come up with those sorts of questions which no previous human physicist had come right. up with? Now, I think in principle you could, because I don't think creativity is magic. And what's more, I don't think that the human mind does anything which in principle couldn't be put into some form of computational oh. system. But as I said before, don't hold your breath. But it's a complex thing, right? Because it's not really just the individual human mind. And you're kind of hinting at that. It's not really just the... Uh, individual human mind that does this. It's the individual human mind embedded in a culture with all sorts of forces impinging upon it, right? All sorts of sort of rational forces impinging upon it at any moment in history that somebody, it's a response to some situation, I think. And it's not just, you know, it's not even in the human mind. It's not just creation out of ex nihilo, really, is it? Oh, it certainly isn't creation ex nihilo. It's creation out of what's already in that person's mind. And much of what's in that person's mind has come in from their culture, yes. Right. So, I mean, I, I, would, I would want to say, insist, it is the individual human mind that does it. I mean, in the normal case, I'm not talking about cases where there is a deliberate attempt at cooperation and so forth and brainstorming and so forth, perhaps like that interesting Berkeley example you talked about. But in many, many, it, but you know, it is the individual minds who do it. But the thing is, of course, every mind is so culturally rich. Right. And without those cultural associations, yes, the individual minds couldn't do what they do. I agree with you totally. We've got lots of callers on the line. We're talking about creativity with one of the world's leading cognitive scientists, Margaret Bowden. 1 800 525 9917. That's 1 800 525 9917. And Chris in Berkeley's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Chris. Hi. Um, my comment is this, that um, I think it's certainly possible to come up with, uh, with a computer program that might uh, produce results uh, that uh, humans think uh, are analogous to uh, human creativity. But, but then uh, I don't think you're justified in saying that, that because that is the case, because the, the, those results seem analogous, that then you can, you can say that, that, uh, that, that that's the way the human mind comes up with creative ideas or is, or is creative. 
Oh, that's a, you're quite right, of course. The fact that the thing does it in that way doesn't prove that we do it that way. For that, you need experimental psychology and you need to try and find out. Actually, it's interesting, Chris, that that was your question. I thought you were going to ask a different question. I thought you were going to say the fact that these things come up with apparently creative results doesn't mean that they're really creative. But what would really creative mean? I don't understand. Well, exactly. What, I don't well, know what exactly. that means. Well, exactly. And in order to answer that question, you'd have to settle, for example, the nature of meaning intentionality, uh, you know, for right. example, etc. You would have to decide whether it's possible to have a naturalistic scientific explanation of any psychological Look, phenomenon I, I, at all. I, yeah, but I, I think even I think even those are kind of misleading worries. I mean, it seems to me if well, if there were, if you think of ideas as tools, and a, and a creatively and a creative idea is a new tool with which we can do things we couldn't do before, right? We had a hammer, now we have a car, and an idea is a tool, a cognitive tool. As long as computers can have tools, and if they can have novel tools that are newly useful, I don't see what other question there is. Well, let, let me give you an example. Uh, we 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 had a we we discussed. Uh, the computers and jokes on this program some time ago. Uh, I don't remember the name of the young researcher from Ireland that was doing the work. But if you're Jay Leno right now, you're hiring a bunch of writers, and most of them come up with, uh, you know, uh, crummy jokes, but they put them all before you, and, and then you and they select the ones that might be funny. So there, there's really two parts of it. There's coming up with the joke, which is creative in some sense, and then coming up with a good joke, which is creative in the sense he wants to pay for it. Now, you could have the same process with computers instead of writers. Uh, that The first part of the process, the coming up with, with new jokes that haven't been uh, uh, done before, uh, would be just the same. Of course, the more complex thing, reacting to cultural norms and selecting which ones you're going to tell on your monologue, would still be left up to Leno. So uh, I, I agree with, with our caller that, that the computer wouldn't necessarily do it in the same way, but, but I also agree with him in saying, for that reason, it's a different way of being creative, not necessarily something that isn't really creative. Margaret, what do you think? Well, um, I think that uh, it's entirely possible that some of the processes that are going on in these programs are quite closely analogous to the sorts of processes that are going on in human minds. And by the way, can I, in a way, back John here rather than Ken in your initial chat when, John, you accused <laughs> Ken of being reductionist uh, because he, he talked about the brain and neuroscience and so forth? Now, of course, everything that the mind does, I believe, is you know happens because of things happening in the brain. So in that sense, neuroscience is basic. But I think that it is too reductionist. Uh, to believe, and maybe Ken doesn't believe this, but I think it is too reductionist to believe that to understand creativity you need to talk at the level of neuroscience. I mean, even if we knew the neuroscience, uh, right, I think we need to be talking at a higher level, the level of what I would call the computational level, but if you prefer, the psychological level, because the concepts that you need, like combination exploration, stylistic transformation, just for example, you know, the concepts that you need aren't concepts of neuroscience. Well, we do a little bit little bit of role-playing in the intro, but, but Ken really is a reductionist. <laughs> no, well, I'm a naturalist. But look, we've got a, a lineup of callers on the line. We'll try to get some in here before the break. Uh, uh, John in Oakland, welcome to Philosophy Talk, John. Hello. Hi. What's your comment or question? Ask it now. We may not have a chance to answer it before the break. Okay. Um, as far as artificial intelligence in computers, this always drives, this subject always drives me nuts. Um, What's missing, and what you're never going to get out of a computer, is the emotional side, which 
as we now know from recent research in the last 20 or 30 years, is a huge, huge component of thinking, and, and I would say particularly of creative thinking. And a computer is never going to be able to generate that unless you can make them feel pain and pleasure. Maybe that would be the way to do that. Well, thanks for the challenge, John. Uh, Margaret, can you answer that challenge briefly, or do you need a long time? Yes. No, no. I will. <laughs> long time to answer it properly. No, John, I think you're quite right that maybe we won't ever, and maybe in principle we couldn't ever have a computer that felt pain and so forth and anger. Doesn't mean to say that we couldn't use AI to help us to understand the nature of emotion and the function of emotion and the place of emotion in human minds. In fact, there's already been some interesting work being done on that. So I think to some extent this is a red herring. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're discussing creativity with Margaret Bowden, one of the world's leading cognitive scientists and author of The Creative Mind. In our next segment, we'll discuss the prospects for fostering and enhancing human creativity. Is creativity the kind of thing that can be taught? Is there a creativity gene that some of us have and others don't? Are there some cultural and social environments more conducive to creativity than others? Enhancing human creativity when (laughs) Philosophy Talk continues. If a creative idea is a new sensation, can it be taught? Are some environments more conducive to creativity than others? Is there a creativity gene that some of us have and others of us lack? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest <coughs> is Margaret Bowden, author of The Creative Mind and Mind as Machine, A History of Cognitive Science. And I understand that John, our last caller, uh, wants to get back at you, Margaret. He thinks you're wrong about something. John, are you there? Yes, I'm there. Okay, so what? What you you, you think just, Margaret's wrong about something? Just to just to clarify, um, uh, I'm not saying that that we can't use computers as as one of the tools that we use to understand the mind and and how it works. But what I'm saying is that I don't think that if we're talking about the generation of of creative uh, works, that a computer on its own can't do that because it a it doesn't have an emotional life and b it's not motivated. To do something creative, so there's so there's always going to be the human uh, interface. If if a computer is used as a creative tool, uh, like uh, like a like let's say like a movie camera, that's entirely possible. But a computer on itself is not going to be able to be creative. Well, let, let, let me stick my two cents in here. I mean, emotions aren't just things that happen for no reason i mean in the in the big scheme of things they have a role sometimes positive sometimes negative yeah. one theory is that a lot of emotions uh, kind of are, are there to short circuit the process of going through reason and deliberation and returning to some more primitive uh, reaction mechanism uh, the point is whatever theory is right uh, we might be able to design computers that have a similar architecture and Im- w- within which emotions can play a similar role. So I'm, I'm not totally convinced, John, although I'm, I'm sure that for the current state of computer technology, you're absolutely right. What do you think, Margaret? Well, I mean, I absolutely agree with uh, John Perry's answer to the other John. Um, certainly computers today 
can't do this, they can't even model this. But that's absolutely right. And as um, the caller John said, they would need to have something like motivation and emotion um, in them, at least modelled in them. They'd have to be very much more complex than anything we can do now. That's certainly true. But, um, you know, whether or not in the end, if we had these things, whether or not then we'd be prepared to say that they really have emotions and that therefore then their new ideas are really creative goes all the way back to those other questions we said before which are so deep in philosophy like the nature of meaning and intentionality and whether you can have a naturalistic psychology in the first place I, in other uh, words whether science can explain mind I, that's all, that's true Margaret. that's true but and I, but i just i think we've reached some kind of a point of agreement about something look john said to me in the beginning when we were doing our role playing creativity isn't some simple single process and this talk about the role of emotion in motivating our thinking and all that and and reasoning that that shows that shows something about that because it's all tied up with the whole network of human cognition and conation, as as we philosophers like to say, motivational stuff. So it's not just you can't say, ah, there's the creative joint there. There's the creativity spot. So I, oh, absolutely, I, I, yeah. I agree with that totally. But let's yeah. let's let's switch uh, focus just a little bit. Uh, you know, some people are more creative than others, and that raises a question: can, Is creativity the kind of thing that can be learned? I mean, or does each person just come with a fixed capacity for creativity that can't be increased or decreased? I mean, do some environments foster creativity more than others? What, what do you think? Well, definitely. I mean, the best way to squash creativity is to ridicule somebody when they come up with an idea that either is wrong or that you think is wrong and to undermine their confidence so they never try to do it again. And it breaks your heart. You see it happening in schools. You see it happening on the bus with people talking to their kids. Um, you know, it, it's that that's a very, very good way of squashing creativity. But if you want to foster it then you want to try and increase the person's confidence and then increase their readiness to experiment. And in three particular ways. Well, I mean, tell us first, about those. Well, I think, first of all, if you want to in increase their capacity for coming up with new combinations, you know, interesting, unfamiliar ones, well, then the more different sorts of ideas they've got in their heads, the better. So the more they know about different cultures, the more they know about um, different forms of human behaviour, whatever. I mean, stuff their heads with lots and lots of ideas, as well as giving them some sort of little exercises, perhaps if we're talking about school kids, in putting them together. You can make it a joke. Um, and school kids love doing that. You know, primary school kids love doing that sort of thing. And they get the idea that you don't just have to think about the cat sat on the mat. Right. You can think about, you know, much more right. interesting, like the cat with the hat, <laughs> Instance. It's striking to me, having a son in elementary school, how inimical to uh, fostering creativity so much of what goes under the name of education is. It just, it's just striking to me. I mean, it's as if we believe that free-thinking, destructive, creative thinking is a danger to something. Mm. I don't know where that comes from. Absolutely. But that actually, I mean, that brings up the second way, I think, of, of um, helping people become creative, and that is hard work practice. I mean, even Mozart took about 12 years of total immersion in music and composing before he composed something that was not just musically competent, which he could do at three years old, but musically innovative, musically creative. Right. And a, a psychologist did a very interesting study of about 20 very famous composers, you know, some of whom were child prodigies like he was, some of whom weren't. And in every single case, they needed about 12 years of total immersion to learn the rules of the space, if you like. 
Right. We're li- you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about creativity, the science of creativity, with one of the world's leading cognitive scientists, Margaret Bowden. We've got a lineup of callers in the line. See if I can get a few of them in before the end of the show here. Shessa in San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Shessa. Hi. I want to talk about isolation. Many art- artists have found the environment of isolation uh, to be stimulative, just um, uh depending on their dreams uh and then again uh on the other hand uh people who isolate themselves with a muse and the emphasis on muses in culture uh especially as an example the the uh latin uh you know roman uh uh greek reference to muses Thanks, Sasha. Yes, well, I think, Sasha, that's very interesting. And it seems to me there are two things going on with isolation. On the one hand, um, you know, you're protecting the person from the distractions of everyday life and other people's ideas and and so on and so forth, so they can concentrate on what they're doing. I mean, that's that's one thing. But uh, also, and this goes back to what I said before, you're protecting people, uh, the creative person, from other people... um, criticizing them and criticizing their ideas too early and again undermining their self-confidence and in fact if you look at um, the personalities of highly creative people as some psychologists have done you find that very very high proportion of them are frankly you know total nightmares in terms of living with them (laughs) very selfish absolutely single-minded you know make their li- make the lives of their friends and in particular their spouses um hell actually the, 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 let me ask you a question. you said something that intrigued me highly creative people and i believe in the idea of a highly creative people i believe in the idea of a genius but also i believe in the idea of these cultural things like science producing lots and lots and lots of ideas Many of them novel, but most of them destined to fail and not be fruitful. So that mm. it's not really so much the, I mean, it seems to me the human trick isn't so much to have amazing individual brains, but mm-hmm. to have amazing social processes that generate lots of stuff, only some of which take hold, and then we spread the, the fruitful ones throughout. What, what do you think of that? Well, I think I think both are, are obviously absolutely crucial, and I think it's a mistake to try and put um, either one over the other. I mean, there certainly are some people who come up, who not only come up with uh, more creative ideas than most of us do, and most of their professional peers do, but do that over and over again. I mean, a very good example of that was Alan Turing. He revolutionized philosophy and mathematics. He revolutionized computing. He sort of more or less invented it. Um, He revolutionized cryptography, code analysis, code breaking, and he actually put it, uh, started out some hugely influential ideas in theoretical biology. So he, he's an example of someone who's made fundamental changes right. in different domains, and that's very unusual. Do you think you can spot those people early on, and do you think you should spot them and say, aha, these are the ones, and we should nurture them in a special way, or do you think this capacity is resonant in more people than we might think, and we should nurture I mean, what, what, what do you think? I think it probably is resonant in more people than we think, but I think it does depend hugely upon uh, your experiences. And if you come from a background where you aren't, um, you don't have any chance to learn the styles involved, you don't have any chance to fill your head with lots of different ideas which can then be combined, well, you're not going to be able to do that. There's something interesting, and I don't know what it is, there's something interesting about mathematics because it's so abstract, I suppose, precisely because it is so abstract, that 
there are more people who can do it younger, i.e. with less experience mm. than others. And there are also, pos well, there are certainly some people, I don't know whether it's more compared with other domains, but some people who can do it without the benefit of, well, if it is a benefit, of a normal mathematical education. Y you, can, you can be an absolutely uh, superb mathematician at 20. Darwin couldn't, have, couldn't possibly have written The Origin at 20. You cannot have enough, you cannot have amassed enough knowledge, enough evidence for that hugely creative book. So, which so he wrote you know, many, much later, you know, at the age of twenty, you just couldn't do it. Yeah. Now, now Margaret, you and Ken are both have this have this kind of optimistic view about creativity. We ought to foster it. it you obviously think it's a good thing, and since we question everything, uh, couldn't we question that? I mean, frankly, at my age, I think God, there's just too much creativity. We had we had the best music in the world at sixties, and then the creative geniuses came up with a bunch of stuff that isn't as good. Uh, we had the, 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 the best philosophy in the world in the 60s and 70s, and then creative people pushed us back into obscurantism. Oh, you are a flower child. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself, How Margaret. sad. <laughs> How sad. <laughs> Not sad being a flower child, but if you really believed what you just said, which I'm sure you don't, you think that would be very sad. Oh. <laughs> well, but here, but let's put this in a non-flower chart way for our last thought with you, Margaret. Look, many new ideas, many important new ideas are awful. <laughs> Hitler's new ideas were awful, right? So there, the human mind churning up new ideas churns up at least as many bad ones and badly consequential ones as good ones. As, as well, yes, but as I've defined the term creativity, and as I think it's normally used when people um, you know, talk about creativity, this notion of positive valuation is built into it. Now, admittedly, there can be um, you know arguments on the one hand about whether a particular idea or a particular aspect of an idea is... Um, is good or bad, you know, is interesting or not, valuable or not, in one way or another. There can be those sorts of arguments. And there can also be arguments about complex ideas, about which aspects of them um, are valuable and which aren't. In the case of Hitler, we've already said, yes, he showed great ingenuity and great um, powers of political persuasion, and he was a very creative man. Unfortunately... Right. The goals that he was aiming for and the anthropology, if you like, that he was being guided by were, um, you know, on the one hand, um, utterly inhuman and, and abhorrent, and on the other hand, fundamentally, scientifically mistaken. On that, you know, Margaret, on that note, I'm going to thank you for joining us. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you. Bye. Our guest has been Margaret Bowden, research professor of cognitive science from the University of Sussex, author of Creative Mind and Mind as Machine, A History of Cognitive Science. So, John, that was a, a fascinating conversation, and it continues on our on our blog, theblog.philosophytalk.org, or on our Facebook page, where we have over a 1,000 fans now, and we'd love to have more. For our final word on creativity, we're going to turn to the creative genius of Ian Scholes, the 62nd philosopher. Ian Scholes, forgery, counterfeiting, fraud, and con games might be considered the dark side of creativity. Rather than trying to create a work of art, you're trying to convince somebody that you have a work of art created by somebody else. But there is a certain panache attached to these activities. Forgers and con men are wily rascals. Artists are cut slack when it comes to forgery and fraud. Look at Clifford Irving. He totally invented his autobiography of Howard Hughes, got caught when Hughes came out of seclusion long enough to denounce him, and went to prison. But his story was eventually turned into a movie with Richard Gere, not a bad return for criminal activity. Plagiarism, however, is slack-free. It is bad. When a writer copies another writer, it is considered laziness, sneakiness, theft. Despite this attitude, plagiarism is rampant, especially among college students and journalists. 
Maybe it's because it's so easy to cut and paste. Or maybe, as Lewis Laffham put it, quote, As journalists come to be more like politicians, their work is interchangeable. And the individual voice is harder and harder to find. It's a gradual debasement of the written word, unquote. The same tired phrases crop up again and again these days. At the end of the day, level playing field going forward. Adding a gate to the end of the scandal of the day. Describing an independent film as quirky or saying that a movie or book is like another movie or book on acid. If everybody uses the same tropes, is it plagiarism? Unless we forget, plagiarism is nothing new. But one example, according to Richard Posner, Shakespeare's famous description in Antony and Cleopatra of Cleopatra on a royal barge is taken almost verbatim from a translation of Plutarch's Life of Mark Antony. Now, I'm a writer. I began my career with an act of plagiarism. In seventh grade, Miss Schramm assigned our class to write a short story. I had just read a tale by Ray Bradbury about a paranoid spinster walking home with a killer on the loose. The story chronicles her fearful arrival home, her locking the doors and feeling safe. When the story concludes, in the living room, someone coughed. Well, I thought that was pretty hot stuff. So the story I wrote from Miss Schramm was that story, reworded from memory, but ending with the same line, in the living room, someone coughed. I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. I was 12 years old in the plains of North Dakota. I did not know from ethics. To me, it was like trying to remember a song I really liked. Well, Miss Schramm loved the story and told me I had talent as a writer, which thrilled me and started me on the long, miserable road we call the writer's life. Now, what if Miss Schramm had known the Ray Bradbury story? I would have flunked and been censured. I would have begun lighting small fires on the edge of town. Hideous experiments with small animals. Lists of imaginary enemies. I would have grown up to be a guy neighbors would describe in cliches like quiet, kept to himself, wouldn't hurt a fly, until the authorities started digging up bodies in my root cellar. So, world, in my case at least, give plagiarism a vote of gratitude, or at least be grateful I didn't get caught. I gotta go. Wisdom of the Ages, in a nutshell, from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2009. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Our production coordinator is Devin Strolovich. Our directors of research are Daniel Elstein and Cole Leahy. Lael Weiss is our webmaster. Also thanks to Zoe Corneli, Merle Kessler, Corey Goldman, Jennifer Jensen, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation. Also from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed in this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. <laughs>